Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 12, if you will. Looking this morning, you say, well, why are we in the book of Exodus? We're talking about the Lord's Supper. Um, Essentially, what I want to do is go all the way back to the beginning and help us think through uh, the roots of um, the the Lord's Supper, kind of its Old Testament ancestor, if you will. When I was in middle school, uh, I think it may have been elementary school. I don't rightly remember, but it was either late elementary school or early middle school um, my, my teacher had us do a class project where she said, you're going uh, you're, you're gonna to research your family history, your family tree. You're going to diagram that out. You're going to come in and share it you know, with us. And um, I heard a lot of groans throughout the classroom. There was just a lot of this eye rolling, you know, oh, you know. But I was excited. I had to stifle my excitement so I didn't get picked on in the hallway out, outside after the class. But I was really excited um, about this because two reasons. Number one, I love history. Just finished reading a great, uh, a great history uh, book on uh, the Civil War. But two, I had no idea uh, about anything to do with my family's ancestry at that point. Nothing. I, I knew nothing about anything except for some of us came from the Raleigh area and some of us came from the Durham area. And that was about as far back as I went. And so I got excited about this. I got on the phone and I began calling my grandparents and asking them all sorts of questions, just peppering them with questions. Some of them were, you know, I don't know, I have to go look into that for you. Um, but they began to answer some, some really interesting questions for me. I dug out our family albums and began to look through pictures and ask, you know, who's that person? Who's that person? And tell me more about them. And I learned all sorts of things like uh, some of the names of my ancestors, my great, great great, and so on, uh, back ancestors. But my favorite part was learning some of the stories. There were some kind of quirky stories, you know. Uh, Sometimes we have a tendency to look back a few generations and go, boy, there were some quirky people, you know, that came before us. Uh, But let let me remind all of us that there will be people come behind us and will look at us and say, boy, those are some quirky people that came before us. And so uh, we, we ought to be careful about that. But one of my favorites was my great-great-grandmother's name on my mom's side was Early Bell Young. Early Bell Young. Spelled just like early. No crazy twist on it. Bell, like the bell we rang before we started service. And then Young. And, and I asked my mom yesterday. They came up for his visit. I said, why in the world did her mama name her Early Bell Young. Like, what, what's the sense in that? She said, I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, so there it is. There you have it. But it dawned on me as I was studying my family tree back then, and then also as I was revisiting some of that for uh, this sermon this morning, that I cannot fully understand who I am now if I don't have some kind of understanding of where I've come from. I can't know who I am today if I don't know where I have come from. I need to know something about the people before me so that I can know what makes me, me. And that's exactly how it is with Lord's Supper. I grew up in church um, my whole life. I, matter of fact, we talked about the songs that we were singing. Um, it reminded me of being in Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Durham, North Carolina. And I can remember as a little boy, this silver plate would pass by me four times a year with these little crackers in it. And this silver tray would come by and it had juice in it, you know, and I was thirsty. Mom, why can't I have that juice? I'm hungry. Why can't I have those crackers? You know, I want some of those crackers. I want some of that juice. And for a long, long time, I grew up in church, never really understanding what it was we were doing when this silver tray came passing by me and people were plucking one out. And I couldn't have one at that time. I didn't understand that. And I'd get my arms kind of folded, my lips pooched out a little bit. You know, I'd go home sort of mad about this thing. But what I discovered is we can raise children 
We can raise youth in this church and four times a year until they leave home at 18 or 30 or whatever it is that we leave home at today. They can watch this silver tray go by them and they can even pluck a piece of bread or a cracker out and take a little cup and, and when the pastor says drink and when the pastor says eat, go along with what's going on and leave out of this church and never fully understand what it is they are doing and why they're doing it. And so when they go off to college, let's just say, or to work or wherever, and nobody's dragging them into church that fourth or fifth Sunday rather, and they see the need, I, I, don't, I don't see a big need for why I need to sit there and wait for somebody for 15 minutes to pass a couple trays in front of me. Sadly, if we're not biblically intentional, it can become just another religious routine. And that's not what Jesus intended for the Lord's Supper to be. So today we're going to go back to the Old Testament biblical roots of the New Testament Lord's Supper and look at where this thing began way back in the beginning in the book of Exodus chapter 12. So here's my plan. We're going to read the text in just a moment. I'm going to give you a brief summary, just a flyover of the Passover, if you will, a flyover of the Passover. And then I'm going to lift out some big ideas to show the connection between the two because there is an awesome connection between this Old Testament meal that was kind of a fast food drive through if you will, because it was, it was pretty quick, and then this New Testament supper that we remember today. So let's read Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14 together. Exodus 12, 1 through 14 reads like this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month that they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it. Roast it over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire, its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments according or against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you. And you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statue. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to take this word, open it for us. God, I'm not capable or adequate to open it 
within myself, God, I ask you to open it for us by your Spirit and draw us deeply into it. Help us to think well and apply ourselves, apply our minds and our attention and our hearts, God, and stir us where we need stirring, Father. Encourage us where we need encouraging. Teach us where we may be ignorant on some things. Father, help us to grow in this time according to your word, through your spirit, because of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So I want you to imagine for a moment being stuck somewhere for a really, really long time in a terrible, terrible place. Maybe that's the nursery downstairs for you. I don't know. Uh, but, but imagine being stuck somewhere for a really, really long time, and there's nothing at all whatsoever that you can do about it. Nothing. You're just stuck there. That was Israel for 430 years in slavery in Egypt. In this little book, Jameson says this. He says, Jacob's descendants were being crushed under Pharaoh's heel for 430 years, and God had had enough. He remembered the promise he made to Abraham to bring his offspring into the land of Canaan, the promised land. So he sent Moses and Aaron to demand that Pharaoh release the Israelite people. But Pharaoh wouldn't let his precious slaves go, Jameson says. So God hurled plague after plague on the Egyptians. We find this in Exodus 4 through 10, just before the section that we read this morning. Finally, God declared that he would kill all the firstborn sons of Egypt because Pharaoh refused to let Israel, God's firstborn, go. The stage is set for Israel's flight. End quote. In verse 1 through 13 of this section, Exodus 12, we find the Lord's instructions to Moses about this Passover event, this 24-hour period that's going to mark a new calendar year for them and a new mode of life as they leave the land of Egypt. And then it's repeated again briefly in 21 through 23. In 21 through 23, Moses is relaying these instructions about the Passover to the people. So we're going to look at the first section together in 1 through 14 this morning when the Lord is sharing this with Moses. He begins by giving these instructions to Moses and Aaron that their new calendar year will begin with the Passover. That's something I've read and, and several times and just missed. That their new calendar year is going to begin with this event called the Passover. Listen, he says, this will be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. You say, what is God doing? He's reorienting their calendar their calendar around him. How important is your calendar? How important is your personal calendar or your family calendar or your work calendar? If you don't put something on your calendar, do you miss that appointment? Monday morning, I showed up first thing. I thought I was doing good. Made it here at 8.58 that day. I'm usually in about 8.30. I had forgotten that I had told a few students from a marketing class at the high school to meet me at 8.30 here at the building. Normally, I'm here at 8.30. I drop my boys off at school, get here at 8.15, 8.20. I'm settled in. Well, I show up about 8.58, I'm thinking, I'm doing good, you know, I'm two minutes early here, and I walk in, and, and someone looks at me first thing and says, there's three guys waiting to meet with you. Oh, I forgot to put it on my, what? My calendar. I forgot to put it on my calendar, and I missed my appointment. See, our calendars tell us where we spend our time. Listen, you know this, I don't need to tell you this, but your time is one of the only things that you cannot get back. So our time is so vital if we look at our calendar and we look at our checkbook, do we not see what we value? Do we not? Go look at your calendar this past week and, and let's look and see how much time did I spend on this activity as opposed to how much time did I spend with the Lord and reading His Word and how much time did I spend in prayer. Our calendars tell us a lot. So God says, I'm going to reorient your entire nation and your life around me. 
I'm going to refocus it all around me by putting me at the center part of your calendar. And so then he says each family has to select a lamb on the 10th day of the month. One animal per family. But this is not just any lamb. This is not the last one in the litter, right? This is not the runt. This is not the one that nobody wanted. That nobody called in from eBay and said, I'll take the last one in your, in your little group, right? This animal was a special animal. What does the scripture say? In verse 5, it had to be what kind of lamb? An unblemished lamb. Your translation may say a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb, a spotless lamb, one year old. You say, why unblemished? Why spotless? Why does that really matter? This part is crucial. Deuteronomy 17 tells us that using a blemished animal as a sacrifice to God would be an abomination. What did God get on the the priests for at the end of the Old Testament? Because their sacrifices were blemished. They were giving God the leftovers. You say, well, why does God put our calendar Uh, need us to reorient our calendar around him so we don't give him the leftovers. If we're not careful, we will do everything that we are interested in doing and then our calendar will tell us that we're not all too terribly interested in spending the time with God that we need to spend with him. We need to look at our calendars. The sacrifice had to be perfectly spotless to fit the bill as a substitute for the people. And then it says the family would keep the lamb from the 10th until the 14th day. What do you mean keep the lamb? Most likely keep it with the family. For four days, they already knew this lamb. They'd had it, you know, for a year. They already knew this lamb well. But for four days, this this lamb becomes something like a family pet. And the children hold it most likely. And they love it and they pet it and they talk to it. But you know what? If you've been around it a few years, and let's say you're an older kid, 8, 10, 12 years old, you know what's coming, don't you? On that 14th day... The entire community of Israel would gather at twilight to do what with this family pet? Slaughter it. To slaughter it. Now, now, now the Bible, some people say the Bible's a boring book. The Bible's not a boring book at all. The Bible's very graphic if you read it carefully about what they would do. They would take the, the knife and they would slit the throat of this family pet. And they would turn it up and they would drain its blood. And they would use that blood as the sacrifice. I want you to step into the story for just a moment because it's easy to sit in our air-conditioned room with our padded pews and just to hear portions of this but not invest our minds and our hearts in what's going on. Step into this story for a moment and listen on the 14th day to the sounds of the lambs. Hear that for a minute. Hear that. Hear the silencing of those lambs. Smell the smell of blood in the air from hundreds or thousands of lambs that are being slaughtered on behalf of these people. You say, if you're new to the story and you've never heard this, you say, that's awful. How can they do that to this perfect little spotless, unblemished lamb? How can they kill it like that in seemingly cold blood? Listen to Tony Marita. He says, the slain lamb reminded everyone that all deserve judgment. What does Romans 3.23 tell us? All have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. So a blameless life had to be sacrificed in place of the guilty who needed salvation. That was the purpose of this lamb, to remind them that they needed that forgiveness, but they could not secure it for themselves. In verse 7, God told the people, don't miss this, take some of the lamb's blood. And smear it on your doorposts and the lintel, which is the the horizontal beam. You say, well, how did they do that? Most likely, most likely, 
They didn't just splash it up there carelessly. They most likely put their hands in this blood, possibly used some kind of instrument in this lamb's hot, fresh blood. You see, you're being awful graphic. If you were a part of this, you would step into the story and see it is graphic. The blood of Christ, the body of Christ given for us was a graphic scene. They would take this blood and they would smear it on the doorpost. Imagine putting your hand into that blood. Imagine having your eight-year-old Son or daughter standing beside you. Why? Why, Daddy, are we doing this? Your little four-year-old girl you're holding in your arms, perhaps. And, Daddy, why did we just do that to little lamb here? Why are you putting the blood on the doorpost? The Lord would go throughout Egypt that night and strike down the firstborn son. And he would literally do what? Pass over. He would pass over the home where the blood was on the doorpost and spare them of death and judgment. You see, it was their obedience. So they would look at their child and they would say, it is our obedience to this act that God told us to do, that God passes over us and we remember what he has done for us. Their obedience, Marita says this, was evidence of their identity as a people belonging to God. It was the blood of this sacrificial lamb that allowed them to escape the judgment by faith in the substitute. Verse 8 through 11, God gives instructions on the meal. He tells them how they're to even eat this meal, what is a part of the meal and how they were to eat it. The lamb had to be roasted, had to be served with unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and they had to eat it in a hurry. They had to have their sandals on, their staff in their hand, they're dressed, and they're ready to go. They had to eat this thing fast. This past week on Thursday, Ethan and I went to the hospital and go make a couple of visits together. And, uh, you know, when you, when you pass by Mr. Bob's there on the way out of town, uh, it's awful tempting to stop in, and uh, I'm really glad that's leavened bread, by the way, because those donuts, man, they're just, you know, they're that high. But it's awful tempting to stop in there and grab you a donut. So I said, Ethan, let's go get us a donut. All right, man, okay, cool, my treat. So we go in, and I grab a donut, he grabs a donut, we pay, we walk out, we're getting in the car, and and we crank it up, and I said, here, pass that thing over this way. So he hands me mine, same thing every time, white cream, chocolate top. Matter of fact, when I walk in in Marion, this is bad, but when I walk in in Marion, the girl says, White cream, chocolate top? So, yep, that's fine. Yep. So, I, I'm eating my donut. I have it in my left hand. I'm holding on to my steering wheel with, with one hand. I'm not driving with my knee at this point, anyway. Uh, that was when I was brushing the crumbs off. And I'm, I'm, I take a bite of this donut, and I kind of look out the window, and I'm sort of half talking with my mouth full, and I see something out of the, my periphery over here moving. And I kind of look over and see what Ethan is doing. And he is brushing crumbs off of his pant legs. And I look for his donut, and his donut was completely gone. I mean, this thing has disappeared. You're talking about eating it in a hurry. I thought, man, I've got to put that in here for uh, the Passover. You know, um, he, he thinks it wasn't that fast. He's shaking his head right now. But I'm the one that gets to be up here talking this morning. So it was that fast. It was pretty fast. But he tells them, eat it in a hurry. That's why the bread had to be unleavened, didn't have time to rise. Okay? So they eat this in a hurry and be ready to take off when God came through and sent them out. The bitter herbs reminded them of their harsh and bitter conditions in slavery back in Egypt. Verse 12 and 13, God tells Moses what he's going to do on the night of the 10th plague. Look at what he says about the blood. I keep going back to this because I don't want you to miss it when we take this supper here in a minute. Listen to what he said. The blood, in verse 13, the blood on the houses where you're staying will be a what? A distinguishing mark. We were at Jack Frost the other day. I'm talking a lot about desserts today, sorry. We were at Jack Frost the other day, and we were eating some ice cream, and I looked down at, at Scott and his leg. He had some shorts on. 
And I noticed on his right leg, about halfway down his calf, there's two little places. It's a really, really light, faint, tan-colored birthmark. I looked down to see which one, which leg of mine it was on. It was on my right leg. I looked at Scott. I said, isn't that funny? I said, you have the same exact birthmark I do. Isn't that funny? Well, he didn't care. He was eating his ice cream, you know. But I said, that's amazing, you know. But it's a distinguishing mark. He has that because he belongs to me. You see, he says here about this blood, it would be a distinguishing mark for you. And when I see the blood, listen, he says, I will, what church? Pass over. He says, I will pass over you. Tony Marita again says the blood on their doors was a sign, listen, that judgment had already fallen at this house. Judgment had already fallen. The question is, on whom did the judgment fall? Did judgment fall on that family inside that home? No. It fell on the perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb that lost its life so that the people inside that home that are covered by that blood, they don't have to lose theirs. God accepted this blood sacrifice because, listen, church, it was the only way that an imperfect and sinful people could be brought into his presence and called his and given a mission and a new identity and a purpose. It was the only way God was providing that way of salvation for his people as they applied the blood to their homes. And then verse 14. He says this is to be a memorial. A permanent statute for you as a people. To be celebrated throughout all generations. Now there's a lot more to the rest of the story. You can go read that. But I want to I stop there this morning. And make five interesting connections for you. That I hope will encourage you. And make this time we're about to engage in. Rich and deep and meaningful for you. A few ways that the Lord's Supper is like its Old Testament ancestor, I'm borrowing off that language, the Passover meal. The first one is this. Both meals are meals of remembrance. What did Ethan say this morning? These pictures help us remember people and places and trips and things we've done. Both meals are meals of remembrance. In Exodus 12, 14, God says that Passover would forever be, listen to this church, a memorial day. It would be a memorial day, a day of remembering when God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And in the same way, when Jesus took the bread and the cup at the supper, what did he tell his disciples? He said, do this how? In remembrance of me. When we take the supper, just like the Jews, we are remembering God's awesome, redemptive, very personal and involved power to save us. We are forgetful people, are we not? Oh, we forget things all the time, right? I forgot, I have a calendar to help me remember and I forgot to put something on my calendar, all right? I'm a forgetful person. So what does God call us to do in the supper? To remember. Second, they're both symbols of a supernatural rescue. A supernatural rescue. In the Passover, Jews celebrate the night when God worked a miracle in delivering them out of their bondage to Pharaoh, who was the king of Egypt. And in the supper, Christians celebrate the miracle of God delivering us from our bondage to sin and Satan. Listen to Colossians 1.13. Paul writes this in the New Testament. He says, He has delivered us. Same language. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And not just left us in no man's land. You know, in, in war, there's that no man's land between enemy territory and your own. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and He's transferred us, the Bible says, to the kingdom of His beloved Son, we could not transfer ourselves. We could not deliver ourselves through any natural means of rescuing whatsoever. This is supernatural language. 
And God is showing the Jews, you could do nothing to rescue yourself from your enemy. And God says the same thing to us. I did it all. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were in the grave. I had to awaken you through my spirit and call you out and give you new life. It was a supernatural rescue. Number three, both meals define the identity of the person taking the meal. Don't miss this. This is crucial. Both meals define the identity of the person taking the meal. Jameson says this, who is Israel? He asked the question, who is Israel? The people rescued by God from Egypt. The Passover reminded them year by year that they were a people, the only people that God had freed from slavery. And listen to this, made his own. Peter says the same thing to us. We're a peculiar people. We're a kingdom of priests. We belong to God through what Jesus has done to us. Jameson, again, listen. On the cross, God saved the people for himself through the blood of Jesus' sacrifice. He freed them from sin and, listen, church, made them his own. This morning, as I'm preparing to come here, preparing my heart to stand in the pulpit and open the word of God for you, I'm working through things in my life that I know are not right so that I can come to this table and be prepared personally to take the supper. And I said to Carrie this morning, I said, you know, on my really good days, sometimes I'm tempted to, to try to go at this thing on my own. And then on my really bad days, I'm reminded that I can't. Every day. I need, I need Christ on the good days. I need Christ on the bad days. I need Christ every day in between. I need him every single waking moment. His grace frees us, but his grace teaches us how to say no to the wrong things, as Titus, or Paul tells us in Titus, and yes to the right things. It makes us his own. When we come to this table and you take this cup and you take this bread, here's what you're saying to everyone in this place. I belong to Christ Jesus because of what he's done for me. I, be, I, I am his and he is mine because his body and his blood were broken and his blood was, was poured out so that I could have forgiveness and be set free. This meal defines us in Christ. That's why the Lord's Supper is only for those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you don't have that relationship with Christ Jesus today, today's not the day to come to this table. Today's the day to come to Christ Jesus and say, forgive me. Set me free. Deliver me from that darkness and transfer me today to that kingdom. You say, well, I can't remember to say all that. You don't have to. When Peter was drowning, what did he do? Reached out his hand. And Jesus was on that water walking. He reached down and he pulled Peter out. He called out and said, Lord, save me. That's all you have to do. And you, then you come to this table because you reached out and Jesus pulled you up. When you take this bread and cup, it identifies you as one of God's people in Christ. That's a serious thing. That's no light matter. When you take this, this cup and this bread, you are saying to one another, I am his, and listen, I'm yours, and you're mine. We are collectively the people of God in a local congregation. We are accountable to one another, the Bible says. We ought to one another, one another. And it says admonish one another, encourage one another, lift one another up in prayer. We belong together. When we come together to do this, this is no light ritualistic routine that we engage in. We are identifying with something sacred. Number four, both are celebrated as family meals. Jameson again says the Bible, the biblical teaching on the Passover assumes that families will celebrate this meal together. 
Isn't that awesome? I love a family supper, don't you? When grandma fixes a bunch of food and calls everybody around the table, you know, maybe she rang a dinner bell for you, or maybe she just hollered, I don't know. And gather around the table, it's family supper time. That's why Jameson says fathers are told to explain its meaning to their sons in Exodus 13. But this Passover meal, Jameson says Jesus' meal with his disciples is different at the end of the New Testament. By celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus takes his friends and turns them into family. He's saying that his family are those who receive his sacrifice. He takes his friends and he ushers them into something deeper. This is a family supper. When you go home and a a little son or daughter or grandchild looks at you and says, tell me what that means. Help me understand that. Because that guy up front, I couldn't understand a word he was saying. You look at them and let me explain to you. This little cup, this little piece of bread. And you explain what that means, that Jesus welcomes us into his family. So as we come together around the Lord's table today, we come to a family supper. At family suppers, let me ask you an honest question. Are they very much fun when there's dissension in the family? Is a family supper a lot of fun when there's just division right there at the table? Do you want to even be there at that table when there's conflict and things going on and you're like, this is just really uncomfortable? It's that much deeper when it comes to the scripture. It's clear. Before we come to this table, we ought to go to our brother, go to our sister, and make things right, restore that relationship if things are not well. Paul tells us in Romans, live at peace with others in the family of Christ as far as it depends on you. We work through our difficulties together. Jesus invites us to the table because he's forgiven all of our sin. Let me ask you a question. If the Old Testament tells us God took our our sins and cast them into the depth of the sea, if he has cast them into the depth of the sea, how can we go fishing for the sins of others around us when God has put a no fishing sign up over that fishing hole? We can't touch it. If God's forgiven it and cast it away, we ought not go after it. Families love Families forgive and families bear with one another. Number five, last one. Both meals remind us of a substitute. Both meals remind us of a substitute who took the punishment we deserve. Jameson asked this question. Why did God spare his people? Is it because they deserved to live and the Egyptians didn't? No. The reason God passed over his people was because they were covered by what? The blood of a substitute. A sacrificial substitute. In the Exodus, the lamb was slaughtered so the people could be free and live free and be forgiven from the wrath of God. In the New Testament, Jesus took this meal. He turns it around and he reapplies it to himself. And he shows his disciples who had slaughtered many lambs before that he is going to be the substitute on their behalf. He would willingly give his life in place of theirs. In fact, long before the supper, At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, what did John say? Listen to this, don't miss it. He said, look, look. And perhaps he pointed out across the heads of those who were listening and preaching. He said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sins of the world. He was calling him the substitute from the very beginning of his ministry. So we've looked at five ways the suppers like the Passover, its Old Testament ancestor, I want to tell you quickly one way the supper is not like the Passover from the Old Testament. The Passover looks which direction? Back. It looks behind. It looks to some great act that happened, a wonderful act that happened on their behalf. 
But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us that when we as Christian believers take the supper, we are proclaiming his death until when? Until it comes. Isn't that interesting? The Passover looks back. The awesome thing about being a believer in Christ and taking the supper is you look back to that cross and you look back to the blood that was poured out so all your sins could be washed away. So you could come in this morning so that I can stand here and preach because I can't stand here and preach on my own merit. It's only on the blood of Christ that I can stand here and open the word of God and say to you, this was done for you. It was freely given so you could be completely removed from the wrath of God. The wrath of God fell on Jesus, the substitute, so it would not crush you. But in the supper, you take it until he comes. This morning in Sunday school, a guy interrupted the class was needing a little bit of help. He said, I need some gas money to get down to the hospital. My mom's up here. I said, come on, I'll go down with you. So me and Dennis, Dennis Kill and I rode down to the gas station. And Dennis walked in and a couple of guys had given me some money to help him. They were standing there. And I said, fill it up. And we get to talking a little bit. And I said, uh, his name was Timothy. I said, Timothy, I said, it'd be a terrible waste of my encounter with you if I don't talk to you about the most important thing. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And then he said this. He said, I'm looking forward to when he comes back. I thought, this man knows his stuff. He knows the Lord. If he's waiting for him to come back, we don't know when that's going to be. But when we take this supper in a few minutes, we take it and remember what he's done before, but we look forward today when he's coming to get us. That's the hope. That's the excitement that you and I can wake up with every day as a follower of Jesus Christ. 